is Talk the Talk. This Sunday is one of the events that makes our place on earth one of the most special. Northampton, Hampshire County, Franklin County, really special places. And we have these amazing events that go on that make us community, and they are so skillful and so beautiful and such an amazing representation of who lives here and is and makes our community and creates the fabric of our community. I'd like to start this show by asking Steve Sanderson, who is the events producer for the Northampton Arts Council, tell them, tell our listeners what I'm talking about, which I often need people to do here, people to explain what Newman's talking about. But this one you know. So Steve Sanderson, help us. Good morning. It is Silver Chord Bowl time. This Sunday at the Academy of Music, the oldest collegiate acapella showcase in New England, in the Northeast, possibly the world. It's happening. And it's going on for decades. This will be year 39. And as always, the first, the first act, the first group to perform at the Silver Colored Bowl will be the Northamptons. Right. From Northampton High School. They're the only high school group that gets to perform. Everyone else is a collegiate act. And what I have noticed over the many, many years that I've attended the Silver Chord Bowl is the Northamptons are as good as those collegiate groups. They are just fabulous. It's, you know, it's sometimes I don't want to say it out loud, but it's true. Sometimes they just take the show. They steal the show. And with us, who will be part of that act of stealing the show, we have Emily and Jackson, who are seniors at Northampton High School, and Susan Dillard, who is the choral teacher and the director of the Northamptons. Beau Hive, of course, was the longtime director, uh, and as we were joking with Susan Dillard before we went on the air, no pressure here, Susan, just you know, step into Beau Hive's shoes, no, not a problem, uh, but you, people say that this is just going spectacularly well, and they really love your direction and your teaching, so tell us a bit about you. Where did you come from? How did you come to Northampton High School? Ah, well, uh, where did I come from? I'm kind of homegrown. I actually went to Northampton High School myself and was a member of the Northamptons. So this um, program, while I'm new to teaching, it is near and dear to my heart. Um, I, uh, I grew up here. I, I came through the Northampton School District. So um, Northampton is home. I did leave the area to go back to Oklahoma City or excuse me, go, go to Oklahoma City for um, grad school, I was there for seven years to do some some more voice work, get into the musical se theater scene. But, uh, excuse me, just one second. Seven years. This was graduate school. This was gradual school. What did you do? Oh, I, I brought. I, I went down for graduate school, but I ended up staying because it was a really great musical theater scene, and I taught voice there at my alma mater, Oklahoma City University, and uh, for five years. And when COVID hit, things changed and I missed home. So I headed back up in this direction. And um, as as luck would have it, I'm not, I mean, not lucky that Bo retired. It's, it's always a, a big hit in the community when somebody like Bo retires. But um, I was so lucky to be back in the area to reconnect with her and, and to step up. This is a, a wonderful opportunity that's changed my life. And we're so glad you did. Let me turn to uh, Emily, 
who is a senior at Northampton High School and a member of the Tones, the Northamptons. So tell us a bit, if you would, please, uh, how long you've been singing, how long you've been with this group, uh, whether there are other groups that you sing with, and if you wish, what your plans may be for next year. Yeah, so um, this is actually my first year with Tones. Um, I'm a I'm a senior at the high school, but uh, this is my first year being a part of the group. But I've done a bunch of other like singing groups at the school. I started like in middle school chorus and kind of like worked my way up. Um, I did I've been doing chamber choir at the school for three years, which is another really cool audition group. Um, and that taught me a lot um, of like technical stuff as far as singing goes. And then um, I've done the musical as well, and that kind of led me to tones. You've been in the musical? Yeah. Which which one or ones? So um, I was almost in The Sound of Music, but that didn't actually happen, unfortunately. But that was my first like big musical production experience, which was super fun. And then um, we did Mamma Mia last year and are doing Rock of Ages this year. Yeah, and I thought Mamma Mia, which is, it's, it's a bit of a goofy story, to be honest. But Absolutely. I thought, but, but the production, which I saw, was wonderful. The musical numbers were terrific. The sound quality uh, was really just uh, made made me just so proud of being part of this community and uh, I just love the show. So congratulations on that. Well, let me turn to Jackson, who's seated beside you. We are on a, a remote hookup, we should let our listeners know. Jackson, I have the same questions for you. Uh, what your musical background is and what your plans may be for next year? So this is actually my third year with the Northamptons. Um, I was in the group while Bo was the director. I was in the group while we did everything online. Um, so, you know, I've had a, quite a few transitions as a member of the group. Um, but I have always sung and played piano ever since I was little, basically. Um, no kind of formal musical training, but it's always been something that I've enjoyed. Um, and. Yeah, I mean, the Tones has been a really important part of my high school experience. Um, just the community that, you know, we build within the group is so important to me. Um, you know, coming in, I, I was a sophomore. I had auditioned online. I hadn't met Bo. I hadn't met any of, you know, my former, or, um, you know, my former people in Tones with me. I hadn't met anyone. And I auditioned and just kind of on a whim, really, um, just because I liked to sing. And Bo emailed me and she said, you know, I know you don't really have any kind of performance experience, but we really like your sound and um, you're going to be in the group. So that, you know, that was a huge surprise to me. I didn't really expect to get in, um, but it's been a, a really big uh, learning experience for me. And I had a lot of older members in previous years kind of take me under their wing and show me the ropes. So that was great. Jackson, this is Buzz. When you decide, when your group decides what to sing, how does that decision get made? Well, a couple of ways. Um, usually the group will meet and we will make just a big playlist of songs based on, you know, what we think would be fit for the group. Um, so this, this playlist is usually huge. This year, I think it was, I don't know, 20, 30 songs. Um, so no way we could learn and perform all of those songs. But um, then we kind of do this secondary process where we sit down, we all meet and we listen to all of these songs and take a vote, see what we like, see what we don't like, see what would be possible to arrange and perform. Um, and then, you know, other times 
either Bo or Susan will have an arrangement of a song from a previous year or maybe an arrangement from a friend. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, a, a mix of, of sources, but you know, it, what I really appreciate about the group is a lot of the time the kids in the group get to kind of have a say in what we're going to sing and how we're gonna sing it. You know, if there's a, a section that we don't like, we'll cut it out. If there's a word that we don't like, we'll change it. And, you know, um, we're very much granted autonomy and um, an agency within the group, which I think is really a special part. Well, Jackson, while you're talking about singing, perhaps I could induce you and Emily to sing a bit for us. I know it's a little odd, perhaps, but maybe you had some practice on this during COVID, singing into a computer for us. Uh, would you do that? Would you be willing? Sure. Okay. So we have a song that we're going to perform this Sunday at the Silver Chord Bowl. Um, it's called Say a Little Prayer by Aretha Franklin. Um, we're actually kind of doing a different take on it, slowing the tempo down a little bit uh, so we can sing a, a little bit of a section of that for you. And then you'll have to wait and hear the rest on Sunday. It's a deal. <laughs> Forever and ever, you stay in my heart, and I will love you forever and ever. You never shall part on how I love you. Together, together is how it must be to live without you. Would only mean heartbreak for me. Wow. Well, well, what what part do you do you sing, Emily? What part do you sing, Jackson? What what's your vocal range? So I'm a soprano in um, in tones, and I'm but, a bass. Yeah, tones. we all kind of float around. Yeah, there's a lot of chameleons in our group. <laughs> Emily sings soprano in Northamptons, but alto in chamber choir, and she's belting her face <laughs> off in the musical. I scream in the musical. <laughs> no, no, you <laughs> belt beautifully. Wow, that's an amazing <laughs> range. That really. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I can't can't wait. I love the Silver Chord Bowl, and I love hearing the Northamptons, and I can't wait till you all are back here in the studio with us. Steve Sanderson, tell us one more time, please, where and how do we get tickets? And again, it's 2 o'clock on Sunday at the Academy of Music, yes? That is correct, academyofmusic.com. Uh, you can get tickets. There are still some available. Last time I checked, there were about 100 left, so we're on our way to a sellout for this one. So do not wait to get tickets. But uh, for more information on the show itself, NorthamptonArtsCouncil.org, there are six other collegiate acts on this bill. Which are? Which are Berkeley Upper Structure, MIT Ohms, UMass Dynamics, Tufts SQ, and the Vassar Devils, and the Bates, Bates College Crosstones. But starring our favorite, the Northamptons. Our home team. And they are spectacular. I want to thank you all so very much, Steve Sanderson, for arranging for having Emily and Jackson, both seniors at Northampton High School, who are members of the Tones, who will be singing and, of course, performing this Sunday, 2 o'clock at the Academy of Music. Susan Diller, the uh, choir teacher and director of the Northamptons, thank you all so very, very much. I can't wait to hear you. It's going to be spectacular. Thanks so very, very much for all you do and all you bring to our community. And we are all in your debt. Thank you. See you Sunday.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show Michael Clare. Professor Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He is a distinguished author on security and environmental and a series of books, many books, I think some dozen books that he has written, an acknowledged expert uh, on defense issues, and he is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine as well. Michael Clare has been with us since before the war in Ukraine started, before Putin attacked Ukraine, and he has been with us regularly to give us his perspective on the war and the prospects for peace. Michael Clare, Really pleased you could be back with us again today. I want to get your update and your perspective on Ukraine, and then I want to turn to another topic that I know you are expert on, and that is China. And I know how worried you are about what is happening between the United States and China and the deterioration of that relationship and how fraught and dangerous the situation is. Hardly know where to start, but let's start with Ukraine. And I have this question for you. I've been reading a lot, hearing a lot in the media about how Russia may be on the verge of its first military, significant military victory in a long time in Ukraine. Is that accurate? Does it matter? What does it tell us about the state of the war and the future of that war? Michael Clare, help us understand, please. Well, we're talking about Bakhmut. Uh, the city in, in Donetsk region of eastern Ukraine, 
which the Russians have been trying to capture for months now, throwing tens of thousands of their troops into the capture of the city. The city itself has no strategic value. So even if the Russians get full control of the city, it's unclear what advantage they gain by it. It has become a symbol of Ukrainian resistance to Russian attack. So by, by defeating the Ukrainians, there will be kind of a moral victory the Russians can claim. But it's unclear that this is a military victory, and it's unclear uh, what the outcome will be as historians look back at this. Uh, the Russians have been talking about mounting a major offensive against Ukraine since the beginning of the year. And so far, uh, all, all they've managed to do is to capture some suburbs around this insignificant city of Bakhmut. Uh, so uh, the Ukrainians could say, look, uh, yes, they, they captured this city, but uh, they've expended tens of thousands of their best soldiers in the process, and they kind of, uh, you know, wound out uh, ex uh, expended their uh, capacity for an offensive, and now it's our turn. So it's very possible that the Ukrainians will, will mount their own offensive now, and the Russians will have been depleted. That's one possible outcome, but it's also possible, as the Russians say, that they've so worn down Ukrainian forces that they will not be able to mount uh, an offensive. So in a way, it, it will have be seen as a stalemate in future histor histories of the war. Is this a strategic mistake from the Russians' point of view? They, they've lost thousands, maybe tens of thousands of soldiers killed, wounded, incapacitated for a city that you describe as having no strategic value, uh, not a military uh, uh, expert by any means, but... That makes no sense to me. Why are they doing it? You know, it's very hard to judge what their thinking is. Uh, the What they have not been able to do is to mount a, a high-speed, mechanized, tank-based, uh, fast-moving offensive which is what they claimed they were going to do and what the Russian armies have done in the past. They always look back to World War II at the end of World War II when they were able to mount these massive tank battles and move swiftly into Germany. Well, they have not been able to do that. So uh, what they're doing instead is World War I kind of tactics of throwing troops over over the trenches to be mowed down by machine gun fire. It's, it's astonishing that they've done this and it's unclear what, why, they, why they're doing this. Uh, so I, I, I just don't get it. You said something, Michael Clare, and we should note for our listeners just joining us, we we're speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus at Hampshire College of Peace and World Security Studies. Michael, I have been reading a lot about how Russia has conscripted tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men who are not trained soldiers. They train them for a number of weeks and then throw them into battles. You describe these soldiers who have been killed in this most recent 
series of battles uh, in Ukraine as being some of Russia's best. Is that which one is it? Is it these new troops who are being mowed down or did Russia put its best troops into this battle? Oh, no, I, I don't say that they put their best troops into this battle. Their best troops were put into the battle a year ago and were, you know, crushed uh, outside of Kiev and Kherson and other cities, uh, Kharkiv. Uh, so uh, what's left is, is the remnants, so far as we could tell. And that's why they're not able to mount these battles. Now, uh, Pres President Putin a few months ago put uh, his old uh, pal, General Gerasimov, in charge. Uh, he's the guy who led the invasion in the first place and failed. And I guess he promised, well, I'm going to I'm going to try again with another major tank assault. And it seems like they tried that at a city called uh, Vuldadar, uh, south of Bakhmut and failed. So uh, what, what doesn't it seems no matter what they try, Russia has been able to break through Ukrainian lines. Has has not been able to. Is Russia running low on ammunition? And are the Ukrainians? There have been a lot of reports on both uh, as to both of those uh, being possibilities. Help us understand that. Uh, well, when we talk about ammunition now, you know, we have to distinguish between the very sophisticated missiles and shells that uh, that uh, and rocket artillery that Russia did use, has used to to a great extent to batter Ukraine's infrastructure. But it seems like they've run out of all of their high tech shells and, and missiles because they haven't been able to use those. We haven't seen that in the past few weeks. So there's a lot of suspicion that they've used up their stockpiles of their very best weapons. But they seem to have mountains of Soviet era tank shells and artillery shells, you know, the the basic nuts and bolts stuff of battering an enemy front line because they keep firing them. Now, I've read reports that they've slowed down the pace at which they're firing these things. So they may well be running out of ammunition. And uh, the Ukrainians seem to be as well. Professor but, Michael Clare, I, I read an article this morning in The Guardian. It was uh, really startling. It it was um, it's about the fact that the former ambassador under three presidents, Cameron Hume, who was a special envoy who helped arrange for Brittany uh, Griner's release, has seriously criticized our Secretary of State Tony Blinken because of his refusal to speak at all with the Foreign Minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, about what the plans are, what Russia is doing in Ukraine, and. Uh, Cameron Hume says, how can you possibly have a foreign policy uh, as a diplomat where you're refusing to talk to somebody who's invading another country in this fashion to find out what it is that Russia uh, says is its justification, etc.? What do you think about whether the Secretary of State should in fact be engaging with Russia uh, in discussions about what's going on in the Ukraine? Uh, in, you know, it's very hard to judge the accuracy of these statements 
because we're told that the Russians have rebuffed efforts by the U.S. to hold talks. Uh, for example, I, I work with the Arms Control Association, as Bill indicated earlier, and as you probably know, the Russians have discontinued participation in the START, uh, New START, conversations that take place that are required to take place inspections and and other consultations new start is the last remaining nuclear arms control agreement between the u.s and russia and we're told that the russians are unwilling to meet with american negotiators on this critical issue uh, so i absolutely believe that blinken should be talking with the russian foreign minister uh, no question about it, but it, but it's un, unclear to to what degree um, they're being the U.S. representatives are being rebuffed by Russian officials in, in attempts to have conversations. We are speaking with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire, a member of the Arms Control Association. Your position there, Michael, is what with the Arms Control Association? Well, I'm I'm a secretary of the board of directors, and I'm also a senior visiting fellow. And in that capacity, I'm studying the uh, role of emerging technologies like artificial intelligence and robotics in the future of war. And we're, and we're seeing how the Ukraine war is showing what future warfare might look like, not in every respect, but certainly the use of drones has altered the nature of the battlefield in very significant ways. And uh, you bet that every, you can bet that every military, the US and China in particular, are studying very carefully how new technologies are alt will alter the future of conflict. We're speaking with Michael Clare. We're gonna continue this conversation right after this. You that never done nothing but build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Increased classroom sizes and cuts to special education are just some of the options on the table for Northampton Public Schools as they try to compensate for a $1.2 million deficit in the proposed school budget for the next fiscal year. A hybrid meeting was held Monday to discuss the budget. Proposed cuts include elimination of a sixth-grade special educator at JFK Middle School and a paraeducator at Leeds Elementary. Mayor Gina Louise Shera criticized the state for not providing enough educational aid and asked community members to bombard Senator Joe Comerford with their concerns. Congressman Jim McGovern is tired of Republican-majority Congress's obsession with social media outrage and inability to pass meaningful legislation. He shared his frustrations to Congress members yesterday during a debate. The American people expect more. They expect us to pass bills that actually mattered to our families. Democrats have been putting people over politics to do it. We get stuff done while Republicans are chasing down the approval of hyper online far right that spends all their time on Twitter trying to own the libs. McGovern also pushed for Congress to pass a resolution in support of keeping Social Security intact for future generations. 
The Greenfield School Committee voted unanimously to amend their policy to allow homeschooled students to play sports with Greenfield schools once again. The committee discussed the policy change. However, the benefits of including homeschooled students seem to outweigh the drawbacks, and the committee voted on an emergency basis to allow homeschoolers to play. Mostly cloudy today, still breezy with a chance for a few flurries and sprinkles this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 20 to 26. It's a sun cloud mix again tomorrow with a high in the low to mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El líder republicano del Senado, Mitch McConnell, se unió a un coro de ataques generalizados contra el presentador de Fox News, Tucker Carlson, por su descripción del ataque del 6 de enero al Capitolio desde que accedió a más de 40.000 horas de imágenes de seguridad. Carlson y su equipo tuvieron acceso exclusivo a la cinta de seguridad que rodeaba el ataque gracias al presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, lo que generó preocupaciones de que el anfitrión usaría las cintas para difundir una nueva ola de desinformación. McConnell dijo que se alineó con los comentarios emitidos el martes por la mañana por el jefe de policía del Capitolio de los Estados Unidos, Tom Manger, a sus bases criticando las conclusiones ofensivas y engañosas de Carlson sobre el asedio. McConnell dijo que los comentarios de Manger son la opinión correcta, pero el líder republicano del Senado no llegó a criticar al presidente de la Cámara cuando se le preguntó si McCarthy cometió un error al darle acceso a Carlson a las imágenes de seguridad. McConnell respondió diciendo, mi preocupación es cómo se representó, que es un tema diferente. En otras informaciones, la Casa Blanca dijo que respaldó la legislación presentada el martes por una docena de senadores para otorgar a la administración nuevos poderes para prohibir la aplicación de video TikTok de propiedad china si representan amenazas para la seguridad nacional. El respaldo impulsa los esfuerzos de varios legisladores para prohibir la popular aplicación, la cual es utilizada por más de 100 millones de estadounidenses. El proyecto de ley le da al Departamento de Comercio la capacidad de imponer restricciones que incluyen la prohibición de TikTok y otras tecnologías que presentan riesgos para la seguridad nacional, dijo el senador demócrata Mark Warner, quien preside el Comité de Inteligencia. El presidente ejecutivo de TikTok, Zhou Chu, comparecerá ante el Congreso el 23 de marzo. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Michael Clare, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for The Nation magazine. We were talking during the break about China. There has been some, but I think not enough publicity, media coverage about what China is doing militarily and politically that could involve the United States in a armed conflict and a serious armed conflict. I know you're expert on China. Michael Clare, help us understand what the Chinese are doing and why. So uh, the big issue for China and for the United States in the region is Taiwan. And ta Taiwan is a self-governing democratic country that China believes is part of its own sovereign territory and that should be reunited with the mainland. That's what they call a red line. Uh, the Taiwanese don't seem to want to go in that direction. And increasingly, the US seeks to arm 
Taiwan and to assist Taiwan in such a way that it will never fall into the hands of the mainland. So this is becoming the pivot, the, the, the central point of contention between the U.S. and China. But it's been, well, it's been a central point of contention, not a central point, but a point of contention for decades and decades. What's new now? What's new now is that until now, both sides, the U.S. and China, have agreed to disagree, but to allow Taiwan to be itself as it is. But increasingly now, the U.S. is saying that Taiwan uh, will never be part of China. You know that the the uh, myth that that uh, China that the U.S. agreed to when we started diplomatic relations with China in 1979, the U.S. said that Taiwan and China are part of one China. They're, they're part of one country. We acknowledge that. It's called the one China policy. Uh, and that uh, we are not going to come necessarily come to Taiwan's defense if it were attacked. Now you hear the president of the United States uh, changing U.S. policy just in the past year, saying that if Taiwan is attacked, the U.S. will come to Taiwan's aid militarily. And so you see the whole machinery of government preparing itself to go to war with China in the event that there, that China invades or blockades Taiwan. So this is new. This is in the past year. China, in response to this, is building up its capacity to fight the United States if it were to intervene in a Taiwan context. So the whole machinery on both sides has been speeding up more money, more effort, more, more weapons put to this task on each side. The United States, as I understand it, has had a one-China policy, at least officially, for a long time, meaning that, yes, Taiwan could be part of China in some way with some kind of uh, special circumstances and economic and political relationships. But now it seems and I didn't pay enough attention to this at the time, that the Biden administration has in fact changed that policy, which has dramatic consequences. Am I right or wrong about that? You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, but, you know, they say one thing one day and, and another thing the next day. Uh, they do say that we adhere to the one China policy. But then uh, President Biden has four times now said specifically that the U.S. will come to Taiwan's aid in the event of a conflict. And moreover, uh, the U.S. will uh, increase its support for Taiwan militarily so that now you're going to have U.S. forces based on Taiwan for the first time in 40 years, uh, supposedly in a training mode. But from China's perspective, to have U.S. troops on Taiwan is an absolute violation of the basis upon which we established diplomatic relations with China in the first place. So you're looking at a possible breach of U.S.-China relations in the not-too-distant future. I don't want to be hyperbolic about this. On the other hand, I don't want to in any way diminish the potential threat to peace and the possibility of a conflagration. Are you, well, I, I, I want you to put it in your own words, if you would, please, Michael Clare, you're the expert on this. Uh, are we 
meandering our way towards the potential for a war with China over Taiwan? You're, you're, you're asking the right question and you're putting it right, Bill. Uh, I don't think either side, the US, China or Taiwan, anybody wants to start a war. And I don't think anybody has plans to say on, on uh, May 25th or June 15th or whatever, we're gonna turn the switch on. I don't think any such plans exist on either sides. However, both sides are determined to show to the other side that we're not gonna back down. And the way they do that is to deploy more and more forces in the danger zone. So China keeps increasing the number of planes and ships it deploys in an aggressive fashion in the areas around Taiwan. The US in, in response is increasing the number of ships and planes that we deploy in the areas around Taiwan. And the Taiwanese military sends up its planes every time Chinese planes come nearby. So you have a situation every single day of the week where US and Chinese and Taiwanese and Chinese pilots are within eyeball distance of each other with their fingers on, on a missile launch. And so the day will come, I fear, this is my fear, that out of, you know, machismo or panic or the- Or a mistake. Or mistake or accident, or they get too close and panic, somebody is gonna push that button on a missile, not to start a war, just to deal with his, they're, they're mainly male pilots, uh, his panic or 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 excitement or machismo and and shoot down on somebody else's plane and then you know then then his buddy is uh, the the buddy of the the guy whose plane is shot down is going to fire back and then two planes are going to be shot down and then four and then eight and then sixteen and that's how wars begin and I think that's a very real possibility not out of intention but out of the, the mass accumulation of these provocative forces in these very dangerous waters. We've been speaking with Michael Clare. He is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies. He is also the Nation Magazine's defense correspondent. We thank you, Michael, so very much for being with us on a regular basis for, for a segment that we call War and Peace with Michael Clare. Michael will be back with us in coming weeks and months. We really appreciate your time and insights. Thanks so much, Michael. Of course, thank you, Bill. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? And even the Jordan River has bodies floating, but you tell me over and over and over again, my friend. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Push, push, come on, one more. Let's go, go, go. Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. Your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? 
Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. Skateboarding, basketball, dancing. Ross Gay has plenty to talk about in his new book, Inciting Joy. Author of the best-selling Book of Delights, Ross Gay returns with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays on joy in its many forms. Pick up Inciting Joy, plus a new paperback edition of Book of Delights at Broadside Bookshop in downtown Northampton. Plus, order virtually any book on the Broadside website, then pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. Do you love books? You'll love Broadside Bookshop. Fill in the blanks. H-A-M-B blank R-G-E-R. You get it? How about B blank T-T-E-R L blank N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, hop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street, downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And this is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment. We have with us this Thursday, Rabbi Ricky Kozowski of Beta Hava in Florence. We are so pleased you could be back with us, Rabbi Ricky. So I want to ask you about a uh, observation, a, uh, uh, an observance, I'm sorry, uh, the, the the story and the uh, celebration of Purim, which is not the largest or most important uh, event on the Jewish calendar, but it's significant, and it was this week. So for those of our listeners who don't know what Purim is, tell us. Great. Thank you, and thanks for having me on the show this morning. So, uh, yeah, so Purim is the Jewish holiday. Um, it means, Purim actually means lots, and it tells the ancient story in Shushan, Persia, uh, which took place outside of the land of Israel. So it's kind of a lesser known holiday, but it's also one of the important holidays at the same time. And it tells uh, the story of um, uh, a Jewish queen who, was, uh, who became the queen named Queen Esther. Uh, she did not out herself as a Jew in the beauty contest that took place in order to become the queen until uh, an, an evil 
uh, anti-Semite, we would call him today, named Haman, arose and wanted to kill and destroy all the Jews, at which point she uh, had to really seize her power, come out as a Jew, and it's a very complex, twisted plot of how she ends up saving her people and um, uh, reverses an order. There was a, there was going, they drew lots to figure out which day they were going to kill all the Jews, and that's what the holidays, that's where the Purim name comes from um and it's a it's a phenomenal story of the world uh sometimes changing from good to evil and evil to good and good to evil and how and how we use our identities to um maybe subvert uh bad things from happening and um it's also a, a wonderful story of uh female empowerment because many of the uh primary characters obviously are women where is this story? We're talking about a biblical story. Where where is it? So it's written in a it's in a uh, it's a Hebrew text called the Book of Esther or Megillah Esther, which means the Scroll of Esther. So it's like a separate. It's not in uh, the Old Testament, New Testament. It's not in the Bible or the Torah, as we would call it, as the Jews Jews would call it. Um, so it's a separate writing, but it's considered part of the biblical canon. And um, there are some versions I just learned recently that were once called the Scroll of Esther and Mordechai, which is kind of interesting because Mordechai is her uh, uncle who is kind of uh, masterminds behind the, the scenes, having her enter this beauty contest to become the queen and sort of get into this position of power. And he's also a, a key hero in the story. But um, it's one of the few books of the Bible that are named after women. So that also sets it apart sets it apart. And it's one of the only stories that was really written outside of the land of Israel that then became part of the Hebrew canon. We know where it was written? Um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if we know where it was written, but it's just considered one, I'd be happy to look that up, but it's one of the sacred writings that we have of this story. And there probably were many other stories um, you know, it tells it's it, there's many communities that have had an issue, you know, of, of someone rising up to kill the Jews. And then but in this story, the Jews uh, are not destroyed. So it's not a it's not a tale of destruction in the end. It's you know, they're saved. And so it's um, often seen, at least in my communities, as like this is one of the stories that we have as a paradigm of of. Um, of not being destroyed. So it's maybe in up, it's in contradiction to many of the other pogroms and other stories of, of communities being destroyed throughout history. It's a story of successful resistance. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I mean, there are some historical uh, roots that might, you know, the history, you know, you can look into as to who the king, King Ahasuerus is how he's referred to in Hebrew. I believe it's King Xerxes. I'm not sure which one. There's, you know, there are some roots of what the story might be based on, whether it actually happened or not. But it is a story of, of um, subversion, of being uh, in a place of power within a system and then using that power for transformative purposes. So, is, within, so is, is Esther's, the story of Esther, the story of Purim, uh, one that re resonates and resonates significantly within the Jewish community and in particular with your congregation? Yes, absolutely. I think this story has uh, remained popular throughout the ages. Um, in the end, it's a hopeful story. Um, there's a little bit of cathartic revenge that happens in the story. There's a lot of humor. One of the things that people do is dress up as 
um, some sort of internal character or sometimes it's just comical, but usually there's some message in your costume. Um, uh, this idea that who you are on the inside can can then be brought out for good on the outside. And it, and it also just really relates to uh, current events. Like we have seen just astronomical um, uh, percent of anti rise uh, a rise in anti-Semitism in recent years. So we know that that's still very present. Um, there's issue, you know, there are there are lots of modern parallels that we could that we could draw. So the the story is always relevant. Do you feel? The rise in anti-Semitism, do you experience that uh, personally, or is that something that's on the evening news or on your news feeds? Well, I think there's kind of two levels. Um, one, certainly um, there have been, uh, you know, cases in the last, you know, four to five years of certainly the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the mass shooting that was there. There was uh the hostage taking at the synagogue in texas a little more than a year ago um we there are significant um horrible things like this that have that have happened and in all these cases i and just about everybody i know ends up knowing someone personally there's certainly been horrible things that have you know happened in israel i know we might talk about israel in a different way but just recently alan ganellis from uh, west hartford was shot by a Palestinian gun, gunman in Israel just uh, a little over a week ago. And he has very strong connections to people in Northampton and in, in our area. So there's always something on that level, you know, catastrophic and personal. But on a local level, I have students who, um, uh, in my B'nai Mitzvah class and other teens that I work with, you know, who've experienced situations uh, at their high school in Northampton, at their middle school in Northampton. And I think, uh, I do think it's very present. So that's, that's like very close to me. These are indeed scary times. I, I, I'd like to go back to something we were talking about just a minute ago, and that's this question of Esther and the story of Purim and the leadership of Esther. Of course, she became Queen Esther. And I'm wondering whether you have some reflections on that in the context of yesterday, I think yesterday, days go by rather quickly, uh, International Women's Day. Your reflections on that, Rabbi Ricky? Um, sure. I love to talk about International Women's Day. And um, uh, it's interesting that it came so close to Purim, but it often does. I don't know if that's just by chance. But the Esther story has so many feminists and also transgender and non-binary folk, people who are main characters in the book. So we have Vashti, who is the original queen, and the king wants her to parade naked for him and his friends at their party, and she refuses. So that was sort of like a first strong act of subversion. So Queen Vashti was always uh, a personal hero of mine growing up, a lesser known character in the story. Then, of course, and she's banished, so they have to get a new queen, which is how Queen Esther uh, comes in. And there's all about her her story and um, coming out, which is certainly an LGBTQ theme that's just really important. Like what parts of ourselves do we keep hidden until it feels safe? And when do we take a risk to come out and bring out our, our true self? Um, uh, there's also uh, Haman, who's the evil character in the story. His wife, Zeresh, uh, is, is really credited with some of his evil plots. So there's this whole other idea of like, we can read the text. How, do, how does the text still 
have a kind of misogynist um, stream in it where it's kind of blaming a woman for not, it's actually not blaming Haman. It's kind of, if you read the text carefully, Zeresh, his wife, uh, is the one who comes up with the plan to, to hang Mordechai and do all these, you know, build gallows and kill the Jews. So there's, there's that misogynist trend that needs to be challenged in the story. Um, and then in terms of uh, International Women's Day, I will say when I was uh, somewhere in my early 20s, I had a friend, good friend, not Jewish, and she, uh, we were both, you know, doing a lot of feminist activism. And uh, she was just in awe because she came from a different tradition where her, she didn't feel like she got her feminism from her religion and her Christian or Catholic uh, religion, whereas I felt like I got my feminism from Judaism. And I remember it was around the time of Purim, and she just was in awe that I had a character like Queen Esther and a story like that to model that's a primary story in our tradition. Um, and so I've always felt that International Women's Day is connected to the Purim story. We're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Rabbi Ricky Kozowski. She is the rabbi of Beta Hava, the congregation, the form congregation in Florence. Rabbi, I know you have other things to tell us about. We're going to have you back on the show really soon. We really appreciate your time and your insight Great. and all you do for our community. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Happy Purim, Thanks rabbi. so much. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. On the Hour, presented by Paul Gauguin Cruises. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. The head of Norfolk Southern Railroad is about to begin testifying before lawmakers in the Senate on the toxic derailment that unleashed chemicals into the air and soil in East Palestine, Ohio, last month. Gregory DeYoung is a professor of operations management at Southern Illinois University. There actually was some advance warning that there was a bearing starting to overheat from this system, but it just wasn't quite fast enough in this particular case. And so the CEO is committing to next generation type sensors that would be more effective. Alan Shaw is expected to apologize and commit $20 million to the response and voluntary safety upgrades. The Senate Republican leader has taken another spill. CBS's Nicole Killian. Mitch McConnell was taken to a D.C. hospital last night after suffering from a fall. A spokesperson tells CBS News he tripped at a local hotel during a private dinner. It remains unclear what his injuries are at this point or how severe. McConnell fractured his shoulder in a fall in 2019. In Ukraine, crews carrying a body bag through the rubble of a building in Lviv after a wave of Russian missile and drone strikes across the country today. Correspondent Elaine Cobb is at the Foreign Desk. 
Power to the Zaporizhia plant was lost during Russian airstrikes. Workers had to use backup generators to avoid a possible nuclear accident. That for the sixth time since the invasion began a year ago. The grid operator says the plant is up and running again. This woman and her family took shelter in their basement near Kiev. We're just sleeping on the floor because it, it feels safer than to be on the second floor in the house. At least six people were killed in today's strikes. A notable jump in unemployment signups. Bank rates mark Hamrick. The Labor Department says new claims rose on the week by a seasonally adjusted 21,000 to 211,000, the highest since late December. New applications for unemployment insurance surged by more than 10,000 in California, by more than 16,000 in New York State. The FDA has just announced mammogram providers will be required to inform women with dense breast tissue that their cancer screenings may be difficult to interpret and they should consult doctors about additional testing. Supporters say the new standards will save lives. It was a no-go at Cape Canaveral last night for the world's first 3D printed rocket. Launch scrubbed at the last minute over concerns about fuel temperatures. Josh Brost with the manufacturer Relativity Space. We need to prove that a 3D printed rocket can survive the environments of a rocket's flight. They'll try again Saturday. Dow up 141. This is CBS News. CBS News is brought to you by Paul Gauguin Cruises. Artfully authentic, all-inclusive year-round cruising to Tahiti and the South Pacific. Visit pgcruises.com today. Yeah, I'm so stressed. Our business is growing. We've got people all over now. Uma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 50 features. Uma? Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Just $24.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Uma. Now you're feeling it. Find Small Business Calm at uma.com slash radio. That's O-O-M-A dot com slash radio. You wash your hands, you brush your teeth, but how do you clean your nose? With Navage. Navage uses powered suction to pull saline in one nostril, around the back of the nose, and out the other nostril, flushing out allergens, mucus, and germs. And it's why cleaning your nose, the body's air filter, is the next evolution in daily personal hygiene. Navage helps you breathe better, sleep deeper, and snore less, but the biggest payoff is improved health. At Walmart, Walgreens, CDS, Rite Aid, Target, and online. Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E, clean nose, healthy life. Tiger Woods' ex claims he tricked... For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Increased classroom sizes and cuts to special education are just some of the options on the table for Northampton Public Schools as they try to compensate for a $1.2 million deficit in the proposed school budget for the next fiscal year. A hybrid meeting was held Monday to discuss the budget. Proposed cuts include elimination of a sixth-grade special educator at JFK Middle School and a paraeducator at Leeds Elementary. Mayor Gina Louise Shera criticized the state for not providing enough educational aid and asked community members to bombard Senator Joe Comerford with their concerns. Congressman Jim McGovern is tired of Republican-majority Congress's obsession with social media outrage and inability to pass meaningful legislation. He shared his frustrations to Congress members yesterday during a debate. The American people expect more. They expect us to pass bills that actually matter to our families. Democrats have been putting people over politics to do it. We get stuff done while Republicans are chasing down the approval of hyper-online far-right that spends all their time on Twitter trying to own the libs. McGovern also pushed for Congress to pass a resolution in support of keeping Social Security intact for future generations. 
The Greenfield School Committee voted unanimously to amend their policy to allow homeschooled students to play sports with Greenfield schools once again. The committee discussed the policy change. However, the benefits of including homeschooled students seem to outweigh the drawbacks, and the committee voted on an emergency basis to allow homeschoolers to play. Mostly cloudy today, still breezy with a chance for a few flurries and sprinkles this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 20 to 26. It's a sun cloud mix again tomorrow with a high in the low to mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is time for Science and Sensibility. I love the name of this segment. Science and Sensibility with Brian Adams. Brian, what do we have today? Thanks, Buzz. And thanks, Bill. And thanks, Dan. Um, Today, we're going to talk about the climate and climate change. And we're not, not going to go apocalyptic about it, okay? We're going to put the gloom and the doom aside for a moment and take a look at the bright side of one what some of our states are doing. Uh, And with us today is Johanna Newman. Johanna is the Senior Director of the Campaign for 100% Renewable Energy at Environment America. She's also a Gazette columnist. So we have two Gazette columnists in the house today, Bill Newman and Johanna Newman, not related, right? But uh, Well, somewhere back on our family trees, uh, I suspect there was some mingling. Of course, of course. Um, Johanna, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. So 100% clean or renewable energy. 11 states have committed to that, which is really pretty exciting. Massachusetts, where are we in that in that list of states? We are still on our journey. Massachusetts has not set a goal of powering our electric sector or any other part of our economy with clean renewable energy. But we are the state where the idea germinated. So um, back in 2016, Environment Massachusetts helped draft legislation that committed would set a goal in Massachusetts of powering our lives with clean renewable energy. And a state senator in California saw that and called up our legislative director at Environment California and said, Dan, I heard you guys introduced a 100% bill in Massachusetts, and I'm interested in doing something like that in California. And so in 2018 and 2019, the California legislature took up this effort, and in 2019 passed SB 100, which committed that state to 100% clean electricity by 2045. That was a huge moment, and since then, All across the country, states have been adopting these goals, including Maine, Virginia, most recently Minnesota. Um, And last summer, Little Roadie actually set a goal of 100% renewable electricity. Little Roadie as in? Which is the fastest timeline to get off fossil fuels for an electric grid of any state in the nation. Little Roadie as in Rhode Island. You got it. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Um, And so where are we in Massachusetts? We're not in the 100% club. Is that right? Massachusetts is not in the 100% club. We have set goals for net zero emissions statewide. We have committed to 
um, having all new electric or all new vehicle sales go over to electric vehicles. But we have not actually, as a state said, we commit to powering our lives with clean renewable energy and addressing the electric sector and the heat home, the building sector and the transportation sector. And as far as our electric grid goes, um, we're, we're not even close to trying to power, setting a goal of powering that with clean renewable energy. So let's do let's do a couple science words of the day, and that's clean and renewable energy. Can you define those for us? And what is the difference, Johanna, between clean energy and renewable energy? Thank you so much for asking. Um, the difference is subtle but meaningful. So the way that we define clean energy is energy that doesn't pollute in the process of creating energy. So for example, if you take a fossil fuel like coal or gas or um, oil, all of those in the process of combustion pollute out of the smokestack, right? There's carbon dioxide, which is a potent, it's a global warming pollutant. Um, and then there are also particulates like NOx and SOx that are related to serious respiratory health problems. NOx are nitrogen well, oxides and SOx are sulfur oxides or dioxides, right? Thank you. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. NOx and SOx, I like that. NOx and SOx, chemical formulas. Mm. Um, so, um, and then it's important that you also, so that's kind of how you can define clean energy um, or how it's broadly defined. And then the difference is that, um, then there's renewable energy. And renewable energy is essentially an energy source that never runs out. So for example, the sun shining down on our roofs is a source of renewable energy. We don't deplete it as we tap it. And you know, until the sun consumes the earth, that energy source will be there for us to harness. Um, and so, and then likewise, the power of the wind blowing off our shores or across our plains is a renewable energy source. We don't deplete it as we tap into it and it's going to keep going, you know, as long as the earth and the sun and an atmosphere exists. So um, our campaign is a campaign for clean renewable energy. So energy that doesn't pollute at any stage of its life cycle and that is truly renewable. And so um, we can get, you know, biomass, for example, uh, burning trees. Some people would consider a renewable energy source because those trees will regrow, but it is not clean because the combustion of that wood releases pollutants into the air. Yeah, I was just going to ask, um, because a lot, a lot of folks listening live in the hill towns. They use wood um, to heat their homes and uh, would certainly consider that renewable energy, but that's different from clean energy because you're still releasing those that carbon dioxide into into the atmosphere, right? So yep. when we're looking at clean energy, we're looking at wind and solar and uh, geothermal perhaps and hydroelectric and some new stuff, tidal, exciting stuff like that. Um, and I will say that on the policy landscape, 100% clean goals often accommodate nuclear because nuclear is considered emission-free from that standpoint. 
Um, there are other reasons to be concerned about nuclear power, even though it doesn't you know, emit carbon dioxide or sulfur dioxide at the smokestack. The mining of uranium creates serious problems. Um, and we don't know what to do with the spent fuel. No you know, idea at all. After all these years, still um, the most dangerous substances known to humans sitting there at those, at those nuclear power plants. Um, Johanna, let's talk about uh, the, the Lindsay Sabadosa as co-sponsored legislation in Massachusetts that would transition Massachusetts to 100% clean energy for electricity by 2035 and 100% clean energy for the building sector by 2045. Now, part of me says, oh, my God, that's great, you know, 10 years, 20 years, you know, clean energy. And then part of me also says, oh, my goodness, we have to wait that long, 10, 20 years? What's going to happen in that time? And then part of me also says, how is this going to happen? How can we make this transition? When we look at our buildings, particularly all the older buildings that we have that are, one, they're energy inefficient, they're very wasteful too. They're constantly burning oil and natural gas. Right. And how do we, how how do we make this transition? Great question. And I would argue that, just like any big thing, it starts by setting the goal. And when we actually set the goal to say we are going to, we have to do this, and we are going to do it. And it is our intention to do it. And we aim to do it by this timeline. That act of actually codifying a goal helps make sure that all the agencies and the teams and all the processes that need to happen can work together in that direction. It sends the signal to the private sector. It helps get government agencies aligned. You know, there is so much work to be done with this space, but we've done great things before as a society, right? We set the goal of putting a man on the moon and 10 years later, the eagle landed. We can do this, but it starts by announcing that goal and then all rowing together. And the sooner we announce our intention to do it, the more likely it is we'll reach the goal. And then here's the exciting thing. Experience on clean energy shows us that when we set a goal and we start making action happen, it is met with success and often years ahead of schedule. Um, And that success then gives us the confidence and the ambition to do more. Because the truth is, transitioning to clean energy has so many benefits. And the sooner we do it, we reap those benefits. And so I'm thrilled that Lindsay Sabadosa and dozens and dozens of other lawmakers are on board with this vision. And now should be the time that Massachusetts sets this goal, sets this intention, so that all the forces of government and the economy and the private sector can row together to make it happen. We can do it, but we got to... Anyway, you understand what I'm saying. I do, and it's and it really is exciting to, to to set that goal. And like you said, there's so many benefits to making that transition: local jobs, cleaner environment, um, all of this this excitement over doing good work and creating jobs while we do that. Bill, you had a question for you. I I do. I want to follow up on this question of the dates. What's the right year? Because it seems to me there's a big difference between 2030 and 20. 45, which is just like a long way away and doesn't really have that urgency. So what's the right date for setting these goals? And if I could just, this is Buzz, supplement that question. How is Rhode Island doing in its declaration of clean and renewable energy goals? Great question. 
Um, let me take Rhode Island first. So Rhode Island last year set a goal of 100% renewable electricity in the state, I believe by 2030, it might be 2032. I would have to go to our website to check. Um, and they have annual benchmarks for increasing renewable electricity production. And so every year they'll be able to say, are we on track or are we not on track? Um, Rhode Island is a relatively small state with tremendous offshore wind potential. In fact, Rhode Island or the nation's first commercial wind farm is in Narragansett Bay off of Block Island. Um, they have seen success with offshore wind already because folks on Block Island love their turbines. And um, just by starting to tap that abundant resource there, um, that's Rhode Island's primary plan for meeting 100% renewable electricity goals. So back to Bill's question, what, what, why this date? And, and again, like Bill said, why 2045, that, that's a long ways away. Well, good goals have a concrete action by a specific date, right? That's what makes a goal. Um, if anybody's, you know, been in a weight loss program, they know it's like, all right, what's your goal? Um, and if your goal is super far off, then it's easy to say, oh, well, I won't go for that walk tomorrow. So having a long-term goal is important. Um, the, when you look at the climate science, it suggests that really in order to keep global warming to less than two degrees, we need to completely be off fossil fuels as a nation by 2050. So one could argue that 2045 is definitely too far out in the horizon. But as long as there are robust goals in the short term to ramp up renewables, I have some confidence that that will create a tipping point where all new production, all new energy production at that point will be renewables, will take the fossil fuels offline. And the key question is just scaling all that up soon enough. I, I, I um, love I love what you said about uh, Rhode Islanders or Block Islanders loving their wind turbines, and we have such potential in New England for an incredible ramping up of offshore wind, and the clean and uh, electricity that 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 gives us can just meet all of New England's needs, which is so exciting. We're talking with uh, Johanna Newman. Johanna is a senior director for the campaign for 100% renewable energy at Environment America. She is also a Gazette columnist. She writes a monthly, right, column on the Gazette, and it's very positive and it's very upbeat and doesn't drag us down into gloom and doom, but it's, okay, here is what we're doing and here is what we can do. So we'll be back with Johanna and more about uh, positive efforts to uh, find solutions to climate change right after this. So stay with us. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 
1240 WHMP. You spend seven or eight hours a night together, and you're supposed to decide if you're right for each other in a matter of minutes? This has never made sense to me. So, when you're in my store, trying to decide which mattress is right for you, at some point, I think you and I just need to stop talking. I need to leave you alone, give you plenty of time to lay down, and maybe even forget you're in a furniture store. Hi, it's Robin. Robin from Talon. Think about it. Seven or eight hours, night after night, and what do you really know about mattresses? I don't mean to make it daunting or complicated. I just think you need two things, information and time. If I give you as much information as you want and as much time as you need, I think you'll settle on a mattress you'll be happy with. At least that's the way it seems to go for most people. Talon Furniture, the small, unhurried furniture and mattress store just down the hill from Amherst College. What's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hangar Pub and Grill? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hangar Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hangar Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game, after work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back with Johanna Newman. She's the Senior Director at Environment America for the Campaign for 100% Renewable Energy and also a Gazette columnist. She writes about climate change and some of the positive solutions that are out there. Um, Johanna, the, the issue in the battle of against climate change sort of brings to the forefront this whole issue of class and income and, you know, the rich going solar and driving their electric vehicles while the poor or even not so poor people making these really difficult choices between electric, you know, paying the utility bills and, and paying for food. How does the move toward renewable energy play out for lower income people? Everybody stands to benefit when we transition our society over to clean and renewable energy. Um, right now, the people who suffer most from the air pollution and the high utility rates of inefficient buildings and, you know, those are the people who are already struggling in other ways. So the best thing we can do is move over to clean renewable energy as quickly as possible and make sure that everybody benefits from that transition. Um, I do think that the federal government's affordable clean energy plan makes it more affordable than ever for everyone to take part in the clean energy transition. So, you know, there are tax credits that reduce the cost of going solar by 30%. Just that in and of itself, lowering the price tag, puts it in reach of more people. But then there are also really significant rebate programs that the feds are passing along to the states, many of whom direct the benefits of 
weatherization and moving over to clean electric cooking off of fossil fuels and moving from a polluting furnace over to a heat pump, those are income adjusted benefits. And folks can get, you know, 100% of their cost of those systems um, up to $8,500 covered um, depending on their income eligibility. Um, and those rebates aren't gonna be going to wealthy people. So it's not perfect, but there are good policies in place to try to make sure that everyone can take part in this clean energy transition. And the truth is, if a guy down the street buys a Tesla and he's plugging it into solar panels, my kid still benefits when it bikes or walks by their house because they're not breathing those tailpipe emissions. So, you know, there's more that can be done to make sure that the benefits reach everyone, but we all benefit as solar and wind grow, as we make all of our housing more energy efficient, as we transition from furnaces over to heat pumps, and as our electric you know, vehicle programs really take off. And it seems like I mean, there's so much uh, work to be done in, in sort of grasping for that low-hanging fruit, which is energy efficiency and uh, tightening up our buildings, adding insulation, and that's where there are good jobs, good local jobs to, to tighten up our, 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 our buildings. Johanna, a lot of controversy here in the Valley about large-scale solar electric going up, sometimes in farmland, sometimes in forest land, I know in Amherst, which is where you live, um, there's a big array, I think a multi-megawatt array, um, going up on an old golf course, right? What are your thoughts about large-scale photovoltaics, that's solar electric, um, going up in, in neighborhoods? You know, the more solar, the more better at this point, given the choice. Um, these arrays will be in place for 25 years. They don't pollute. They... You know, we can co-locate them with pollinator-friendly habitats. Um, given the choice of solar in my neighborhood versus continuing to burn fossil fuels, for me, the choice is clear. I'm thrilled that Amherst was able to acquire the golf course and that, you know, solar is part of their plan. Um, that being said, I know I'm not the, I know I am, um, there are many who share my opinion, and then there are many who really feel like, no, this is, you know, these larger solar arrays are a threat to the local ecology. Um, I don't want to see large mounted solar everywhere. Um, I think there are places that we could make off limits. Certainly, I think we should be directing solar to the built environment as much as possible. I think, um, you know, the Walmart in Hadley should have solar. The Target in Hadley should have solar. Um, municipal buildings should have solar on the roofs. We should do more solar parking canopies like they've installed at River Valley Market and at much of UMass. Um, we should absolutely be maximizing solar on the built environment, but we also are gonna need to tolerate um, seeing renewable energy in our landscape. Um, and I think the more that people are aware of the benefits of it and how it's taking dirty, polluting energy offline, um, 
you know, I don't know, the yeah. better it'll be. Brian Adams, I just, I just wanted to have you clarify that the, the nature of your question is some argue that by putting solar panels on agrable land that, in fact, uh, we're removing all the benefits of having open land and land that's used for agriculture. Uh, rather, we should be putting it, as Johanna was just saying, on parking lots and places that are already paved. Is that the issue that you were alluding yeah. to? Yeah, and the issue is, in some cases, actually clear-cutting for us. Uh, and we know that carbon, uh, carbon sequestration, trees sucking up carbon out of the atmosphere, it is a huge uh, uh, plus in terms of reduce or uh, reducing the impact of climate change. So trying to keep trees out there and not deforesting large landscapes to put up solar uh, is something to think about. I'm a big UMass basketball fan, particularly women's basketball, and I love going to Mullins and parking under the photovoltaic array there right next to right next to Mullins. We are just about out of time. Johanna, you write a um, just one quick question. You write a column for the Gazette. When is the next one coming out, and what do you plan to write about? It's coming out next Thursday, and I'm still working on choosing a topic. Um, I'm trying to decide between the campaign to recognize the value of old growth trees on the part of the U.S. Forest Service, which is very much an issue right now. Um, so uh, with the potential announcement coming as early as March 20th of this year about the Forest Service, you know, policy around logging old growth forests. Um, I think there's a real case to be made that those trees are worth more standing. Uh, so that's one topic that I'm thinking about. A second topic I'm thinking about is the upcoming schools vote in Amherst. You know, on May 2nd, voters are going to go to the polls to decide whether to replace two flawed and failing, wildly outdated elementary school buildings that burn fossil fuels and are totally under-insulated um, with a modern, multi-story, net-zero building that, you know, has geothermal heat pumps and solar panels on the roof. And I could um, see where your sympathies lie just by presenting that. <laughs> um, Johanna, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with Johanna Newman. She is a senior director at Environment America for the campaign for 100% renewable energy. You can visit their website, right, Johanna, at Environment America? Is that, is that yeah, what it's called? Environmentamerica.org. There you, you go. got it. And you can also read Johanna's columns as they come out in the Gazette. And the next one is a week or so from today, right? Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, Buzz, what, what do we got for the second half of the show? Well, I'm, I, I, first of all, thank you for the science words of the day. Clean, renewable, renewable and clean. There we go. And I'm going to remember Knox and Socks. And <laughs> we're going to have Glenn Siegel coming in with Take 5 jazz segment. He's got a wonderful musician that we're going to be introduced to right after these messages. In the 1970s I was lying in a burned out basement With the full moon in my eye I was hoping for replacement When the sun You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg 
For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Increased classroom sizes and cuts to special education are just some of the options on the table for Northampton Public Schools as they try to compensate for a $1.2 million deficit in the proposed school budget for the next fiscal year. A hybrid meeting was held Monday to discuss the budget. Proposed cuts include elimination of a sixth-grade special educator at JFK Middle School and a paraeducator at Leeds Elementary. Mayor Gina Louise Shera criticized the state for not providing enough educational aid and asked community members to bombard Senator Joe Comerford with their concerns. Congressman Jim McGovern is tired of Republican-majority Congress's obsession with social media outrage and inability to pass meaningful legislation. He shared his frustrations to Congress members yesterday during a debate. The American people expect more. They expect us to pass bills that actually mattered to our families. Democrats have been putting people over politics to do it. We get stuff done while Republicans are chasing down the approval of hyper-online far-right that spends all their time on Twitter trying to own the libs. McGovern also pushed for Congress to pass a resolution in support of keeping Social Security intact for future generations. The Greenfield School Committee voted unanimously to amend their policy to allow homeschooled students to play sports with Greenfield schools once again. The committee discussed the policy change. However, the benefits of including homeschooled students seem to outweigh the drawbacks, and the committee voted on an emergency basis to allow homeschoolers to play. Mostly cloudy today, still breezy with a chance for a few flurries and sprinkles this afternoon, a high of 42 to 46. Scattered clouds tonight, overnight low of 20 to 26. It's a sun cloud mix again tomorrow with a high in the low to mid 40s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. That stabbing pain in your neck that keeps you up at night. Ugh. The creaking noise you hear while climbing the stairs. Well, if you ruled out that your neck pain isn't your partner, and the creaking noise isn't the stairs, and it's your knee, maybe it's time to make an appointment with the physical therapy team at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. And at New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy, you don't have to be a patient to set up an appointment. Whatever you need, the physical therapist at New England Orthopedic Surgeons will work with your primary care doctor to ensure you're getting the exact treatment for your injury and severity of pain. Physical therapy can be a great option if surgery isn't. Call or go online to set up your appointment today at a location near you in Northampton, East Longmeadow, Springfield, Feeding Hills, or Ludlow and get physical with New England Orthopedic Surgeons Physical Therapy. In today's competitive hiring environment, job seekers demand stability, competitive salary, generous benefits, work-life balance, and a path to retirement. The Massachusetts Department of Correction can offer all of those things. This is the perfect time to join the team as a correction officer and take advantage of the accelerated hiring process in a career that's challenging yet rewarding and allows one to make a positive difference in the lives of others by providing custody care and support programs for those under supervision. Salaries start at $62,000 and include a pension plan, health, dental, and vision insurance, as well as paid sick, personal, and comp time. Get full pay during your academy training, education pay, tuition reimbursement, and the option of early retirement after 20 years. If you have never considered a career in corrections, now is the perfect time. Apply today at mass.gov doc recruitment. Start your rewarding career at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. Paid for by the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are here with our Take 5 segment with Glenn Siegel. Hello, Glenn. Good day. How are you? <laughs> Good great. day to you. I'm doing really well. It's great to be here. So um, you have this uh, incredible pianist, composer, educator, Angelica Sanchez. Um, she's going to be performing uh, soon. Where and when? Yeah, she'll be in town tomorrow at uh, Buckley Recital Hall, Amherst College, uh, at 7.30. She'll be performing in a duo with uh, the great trumpeter Wadada Leo Smith. The best name ever. Yes, Leo Smith, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wadada is, look, Glenn, Buzz, boring names. Wadada, now there's a name. Yeah, yeah, she, uh, it's a great duo, and um, she has been uh, working with him for over a decade, and um, it's uh, a, a great duo. She's a piano player, um, and um, she has been working all over the world. In fact, I want to ask her about her great, uh, um, great uh, amount of work that she's doing, and... Uh, She's uh, teaching at Bard now, and I want to ask her about that. And uh, um, yeah, let me, let me ask you, Glenn Siegel, how do you find these great musicians and arrange them, particularly for Jazz Shares, that wonderful program, which mm -hmm. I think is a product of your perverse imagination, right? It is. Yeah, we came up with the concept about uh, twelve years ago, and uh, sort of like farm shares kind of thing. Exactly. So yeah, the the concept is based on farm share model. And uh, so we have people who buy a share before the season, and uh, uh, and uh, contribute to the process. And then we uh, are uh, well, well, have the money to uh, to produce all these concerts. Right. Well, well, this is Dan. How does it work? So, like, I can understand a farm share, right? You pay, and then there's food distributed to you. Um, uh, my, my curiosity is, is this, well, how does it work? How would it work for a, a jazz share? So like, do I pay one amount mm -hmm. and I get to then go see every jazz concert in Western Mass in Northampton? I mean, how, do, how does that actually work yeah, in detail? Yeah, it's uh, $125 is a full share and $65 is a half share. And we um, uh, get a... 120 shareholders or, or more. Uh, and then for a full share, you get uh, 10 admissions to our concerts. And for a half share, you get five admissions. Um, and that guarantees that we have the money to pay artists, be able to guarantee artist fees and pay for the other expenses that are involved. It's really brilliant. It's an inexpensive way to get top quality, uh, be immersed in top quality music choices Mm -hmm. that people can make. So, uh, But how do you find these great artists? Yeah, well, you know, I'm pretty steeped in the genre, and I uh, did radio myself for many, many years at WMUA and uh, a little bit at uh, NEPM. And... Um, uh, are you just connected with them and their agents and things like yeah, that? Yeah, actually, most of the time we're dealing directly with artists. Uh, we don't use agents that much. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just really, uh, you know, dive into the music. And, uh, uh, and, and so, in particular, we're talking about this extraordinary pianist, composer, educator, 
Angelica Sanchez, who's going to be performing on Friday with trumpeter Wadada Leo Smith at the Buckley Recital Hall at Amherst College at 7.30. So I think you're bringing Angelica in by phone. Is that right? Yeah, she's uh, with us today. I'm, I'm here. Hey, Angelica, it's great to have you with us. Yeah, sorry about the little uh, mishap there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Let me give our listeners just a short thumbnail sketch of the great Angelica Sanchez, who moved to New York from Arizona in 1994. And uh, since she's been on the East Coast, she's collaborated with such great artists as the late Paul Motion, uh, flutist Nicole Mitchell, and others. She leads ensembles at varying size from solo to nonette, and she's won numerous awards, played in major venues around the world, and recorded uh, over a dozen albums as a leader, including one with Wadada Leo Smith, with whom she'll perform tomorrow. And uh, welcome to Take 5 on WHMP. It's great to have you with us, Angelica. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So one of the records you made uh, was a duo with Wadada. Um, for those who are not familiar with him, tell us a little bit about the great trumpeter Wadada Leo Smith. Uh, well, Wadada is a, a master composer and creator. Um, he does not prefer the word improvise. Um, so he uses the word uh, create because that's what he does. And uh, I had the pleasure to played with him for a few years in uh, the Golden Quartet and also uh, another larger group. Um, And he's done so much for the music and he's influenced so many people. Um, I can't begin in a few minutes to explain like how important he is um, as a creator. Um, But I I, I learned a lot from him in terms of uh, um, how you connect with someone uh, and how you create with someone. I learned a lot of from him about composition, and he's still influencing me today, of course, so I'm looking forward to playing with him. Yeah, what is it like to play with him? How do you prepare for a concert like this? Well, I um, I think the most important thing that I do for myself is to make sure that I'm, I'm really focused and I, I'm, I practice good self-care, and of course I play the piano every day. Um, but the, the, the real important thing is just really, you know, preparing myself to, uh, be in the moment with him and, and not have any expectation as to what's going to happen. Right. And just have that sort of, uh, courage and, and, uh, uh, mindfulness to, to be in the music in the moment with, with him. Right. And, um, not necessarily practice this uh, idea of reactionary uh, playing, right? Uh, uh, some people say improvising, reactionary improvising. Um, uh, but just to sort of be in the moment with him and see where it takes us. So um, it's a, it's like a meditation for me. I can't speak for Wadada, but um, that's what I learned about his practice, you know, to what that means to be in the moment and and we're building two separate things together, sort of under the same sun, and to have the courage to do that, right? So well, that, necessarily that's, relying on each other. That's right. my question. This is Buzz Angelica Sanchez. So when, when you say, I love the metaphor of, of meditation, but is it your job as a pianist to sort of provide the background to highlight 
a great trumpeter like Wadadalia Smith's uh, work, or are you going to be, here's my wonderful work on the piano, as much as it's going to be his wonderful work on the trumpet? Yeah, it's not my, he doesn't need any help to be great. <laughs> he doesn't need my help for sure. <laughs> He's great without me. Um, so you're not just no, an accompanist. Right. No, there is no subservient roles in the way uh, in, the, in the way we make music, you know, and that's something I learned from him. It's not a new idea, um, but I he doesn't need me to accompany him, right? So we each have our own separate universes, and uh, but we're still connected, you know. We're still connected in the moment. So, um, so yeah, that, that's that's a, that that's how I think about it, right? So. Um, but no, he's, there's no accompaniment or uh, role-playing of any sort in the, in the music in terms of traditional musical roles, right? How people normally think about them. And Angelica, how, how do you describe your music for those who haven't heard it? Um, I, I don't really have a, a description. I, 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 can, I can tell people, and this is what I tell people when they come to concerts, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but I can promise you that I'll take you on a journey. And and I just ask people to sit in the seat and be non-judgmental and and try to enjoy that that journey. Right. So, um, have I told someone what was to come? Then I, I wouldn't really be in the moment. So I I don't know what's to come. You know, even if I write a composition that has, you know, there's there's as I write in a way that there's aspects of that composition where it's going to be different every time. So um, mm-hmm. that's all I ask of people is just to uh, to come on the journey with us. And speaking right. of compositions, will there be any prearranged thematic material that, that you'll cover, or is it completely improvised or created on the spot? It'll be created in the moment, right? Nothing nothing predetermined. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, it it really does demand a lot from the listener. It's different than... Uh, music you can tap your feet to consistently or uh, melody that uh, is familiar to people. So it really does demand a lot from the listener, and uh, the rewards are uh, equally great. Right. There'll be a dance to it. Your your soul can dance to it. So, mm-hmm. um, And your toes, your toes can too, right? So. <laughs> so this is pianist, composer, educator Angelica Sanchez on Friday, Lynn. Tomorrow. Be, right. Performing where? Tomorrow at Buckley Recital Hall, which is a beautiful hall on the, in the Arms Music Building on the campus of Amherst College. So we're going to uh, talk more with Angelica right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about 700000 The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million. 
a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, local insurance, in partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. The months following a child's birth can be of the most trying times of a woman's life. With the round-the-clock demands of a newborn, who is the time or energy for housework? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work for you. With our Green Care Postpartum Support Program, we offer discounted green cleaning services on a sliding scale to postpartum families for the duration of the fourth trimester, or the first three months after your baby is born. To find out more about the services we provide, check us out online at greenloveclean.com. Hi, I'm Misty Lyons, Assistant Vice President and Mortgage Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank. And I'm Mary Pomeroy, Assistant Vice President and Mortgage Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank. If you're in the market for a new home in Hampshire County, call us. We can help you find the best way home with exceptional service, great rates, and pre-qualification for your GSB mortgage. We can help you choose the right mortgage for your home. That's why more and more residents in Hampshire County bank with us. Stop into any of our offices or apply online. Or call us at 413-775-8200. That's 413-775-8200. And find out how great local banking can be. Greenfield Savings Bank. Helping more and more Hampshire County residents find the best way home. Go to greenfieldsavings.com for full details. Member FDIC, member DIF, equal housing lender. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And it's Glenn Siegel back with Angelica Sanchez, who is performing tomorrow at Buckley Recital Hall, Amherst College, at 7.30 p.m. You can get advanced tickets at www.jazzshares.org. She'll be in performance with the great trumpeter, Wadada Leo Smith, who's 81 years old. And Angelica, you know, I was so taken when I first uh, encountered your music. It was really uh, riveting and, uh, like you said before, uh, totally unexpected. And uh, this music, uh, to me, is uh, full of surprise. And uh, it's... uh, it, as I said before, it demands a lot and it rewards a lot. So I'm really excited to uh, be uh, with you today on WHMP and uh, looking forward to the concert tomorrow. Um, it seems like you're in a real uh, purple patch, as they say. You're working now more than ever. I see you'll be in Chicago uh, in a month or so, and you'll be at the prestigious Big Ears Festival in Knoxville. You'll be performing across Europe a couple of times uh, in 2023. Do you feel like there's been uh, an uptick in your career recently? It's funny. Um, yes, I do f- feel like that's happening. Um, I, I also recently um, 
last uh, last fall took a full time position as a teacher at Bard College, and uh, I thought, oh, in my mind, I'll, I'll I'll probably slow down a little bit and work a little bit less. But it's been quite the opposite of, of that. Um, I've, I'm definitely playing more this year. That's uh, probably my one of my busiest years. Um, which is fantastic, and it's it's great that that's happening, and I'm uh, getting to play with some some people that I've I've been playing with for a, a long time, and also some new folks, which I'm very excited about. So it's it's nice that that happens. It never happens when you want it to happen, but it's nice that it's happening now. <laughs> so yes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about balancing all of that. Uh, not only your your full time teaching and performing career, but you. Also have a a teenager at home. How how's that going? Is just as far as like time management. Well, um, you had to be super organized, and uh, you know, oftentimes, um, sometimes you're not. So so it's it, it can be a it's a delicate balance for sure. So, you know, I'm one of those people that has to write everything down and and uh, keep good clear communication and. Uh, and uh, I talked about self-care before, like that sort of key to staying on track, you know, like I watch what I eat and what I do and what time I go to bed, all those things that nobody likes to talk about become hyper important when you have a schedule um, that sort of pushes you to your human limits, right? So um, all those things kind of have to stay in check. Yeah, I make mistakes sometimes, but I I, I try to... Uh, to, to keep all those uh, things very organized, um, but my son, he's he just turned 18 and um, he's doing well. He's he's struggled a little bit with um, with my schedule, but he's doing quite well. He's doing all right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as far as your upcoming gigs, what what are you especially looking forward to besides the concert tomorrow night in Amherst, of course? Oh, um, well, I've I've played for years with this. Um, the trumpet player uh, Rob Mazurek, right? Um, uh, those concerts in Chicago um, that are coming up in... Sorry, I have to look. They're coming up at the end of March. I'll also have a concert in uh, in Chicago at the Hungry Brain with Tamika Reed. Um, that would be great. She also plays with Rob Mazurek. Um, so we, you know, it's like this little family of people. Um, I uh, In April, I'm playing with Terry Janor. Um, we, uh, in her group and, uh, also in duo, um, and Terry's, uh, lives in Northfield, Massachusetts and, uh, was a guest on this show a few weeks ago. So we're looking forward to, to that ensemble. I'll also be, um, uh, this summer, I'll mention it cause it's, it's his school and, uh, um, uh, in, uh, in, that's in September, uh, with, um, Oh, here, let me pull it up. I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm just wondering, Angelica, in the couple minutes that we have left, when you're collaborating, especially as a composer with another composer, how do you choose what it is you're going to play? Um... You mean if we're playing like through composed music? Yeah, if you're well, whether you're going to go just the creative route, if you're going to play your own music, how how do you, two people who are great artists choose what to play during a performance? I mean, you know, in some of these groups that I've that I play with, um, I'm a side person, so the leader will decide. But if it's like duo, like with Terry, um, it's uh, it's her project, so she'll decide. But um, in some of these collectives that I'm in. 
um, like I play with uh, Tom Rainey and Tony Malaby and that collector. We just um, we don't decide. We just sit down and start playing, right? So it just, every group's a little bit different, you know. Um, I'll usually go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I just think that that concept is is foreign to a lot of people who listen to music. It's like you just sit down and start playing. Well, what if you know how how does that work? It's it seems. I think to to the lay listener, um, it's kind of mind-boggling that that there's no prearranged, uh, you know, starting and stopping. I'm time. so envious of that. Yeah. Oh, really? Well, I yeah, did that an you can do that. Not so long ago, uh, and they asked me about this recording that was we made last year with uh, Tom Rainey and Tony Malaby. It's called Lapango. And he said, tell me about the compositions on the record. I said, we, we didn't decide anything. We just sat down and started playing. But we have 25 years of history playing with each other, and we know each other quite well. So we're making these spontaneous compositions, you know, in the, in the moment. And it's all about listening, right? It's like, how, how, how good a listener are you? How deep can you go? Um, there's that concept of deep listening that Pauline Oliveris uh well, how uh, deep can you go? It. Unfortunately, we're going to have to yeah. leave it there. It's a great place to leave it, Glenn Siegel. Mm-hmm. Okay. How deep can you go? So the performance is, one more time. Tomorrow evening, 7.30 p.m. at Buckley Recital Hall in the Arms Music Building on the campus of Amherst College, 53 College Street. Uh, you can get tickets at the door. You can also get advanced tickets at www.jazzshares.org. And once again, it's Angelica Sanchez on the piano and the extraordinary trumpeter, Wadada Leo Smith. It sounds like a great concert. It'll be an adventure. Angelica, thank you for joining us. Everybody, thank you for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, we all should be also walking the walk. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 101.5, and 12.40. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 11 o'clock.